You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here, welcoming you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. I'd like to take this moment at the outset to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, we are delighted to be celebrating the life and work of one of the 20th century's most overlooked cultural figures. Harry Smith was a trailblazer in his day. His influence upon artists, filmmakers, and musicians is undisputed. He was nonetheless underappreciated amongst popular audiences. Our friends over at Farrar Strauss Giroux have published a compelling new book, Healing the Layers to Expose the Many Different Faces of Harry Smith. It's titled Cosmic Scholar, The Life and Times of Harry Smith, and it's authored by Grammy Award-winning music scholar and celebrated biographer John Zwed. We are honored to have him with us tonight. This is the very first biography of a man who walked in many worlds. Harry Smith was an anthropologist, a filmmaker, a painter, folklorist, mystic, and considered by many to be a kind of a walking encyclopedia. His life was just filled with numerous friendships. He crossed paths with the like of Allen Ginsberg, Robert Maplethorpe, Thelonious Monk, Susan Sontag, amongst many, many others. He was an insatiable creator and collector responsible for the influential anthology of American folk music and several pioneering experimental films. John Zwed has performed a great service in revealing the depth and character of the seminal figure in 20th century art and literature. John Zwed is a Grammy Award winner, as well as author and editor of numerous books, including biographies of Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, Sun Ra, and Alan Lomax. In 2005, he was awarded a Grammy for his book, Dr. Jazz. He's a former professor of anthropology, African-American studies, and film studies for 26 years at Yale University, as well as professor of music and jazz studies at Columbia University, and served as the chair of the Department of Folklore and Folk Life at the University of Pennsylvania. He makes his home in Philadelphia with his family. Joining him tonight in conversation is none other than Raymond Foy. Raymond Foy is a writer, curator, editor, and publisher. From 1978 to 1980, he worked as a literary editor here at City Lights Books, where he edited The Unknown Poe. It's great to have him with us. Uh, He also edited two issues of Beatitude magazine, and together with Francisco Clemente, he founded the influential Hanuman Books His show, The Heavenly Tree Grows Downward, at the James Cohen Gallery in New York, was the first exhibition to feature the artworks of Harry Smith. He is also currently preparing an edition of Cosmologies, the Naropa Lectures of Harry Smith, to be published in October of 2023. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to John Zwed and Raymond Foy. Gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. So, John, congratulations on a truly fabulous book. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really like none other, except in some ways, it's a lot like your Sun Ra book, Space is the Place. Uh, there seem to be a number of similarities between Harry Smith and Sun Ra. Um, 
They're both uh, very anti-biographical. I mean, Sun Ra denied ever being born. His timeline starts in Egypt and it goes to Saturn with occasional stops in New York and Philadelphia. Um, did did writing spaces the place prepare you for cosmic scholar? Uh, so I thought, I mean, um, I wandered into Sun Ra basically with thinking I had some kind of connection to him because I was born the same town that he was born. It's a pretty weak connection, but in the South, maybe it means something. Um, I was living near him, very close to him, a few blocks away from him in Philadelphia. Uh, that, that would draw too big a picture of that, but somehow I thought, well, I'll understand something about this guy who, if he was a guy, and that was a mistake already, because he, he would quickly disabuse you of any kind of human identities. and even trickier, he would change identities. Um, just as you think you understood one of them, another one popped up. The most famous one, he seemed, ceased being, I hesitate to even say, he ceased, he, he was moving around in a bit, let's put it that way. Although he should be a Saturnite by the usual kinds of things. I once asked, were you really, really from Saturn? He said, I never said I was from Saturn. So I thought you did. I visited there, I wasn't from there. Oh, nice distinction, but for sure he was not saying he was from Birmingham, which was what I was on to at the time. And then about the time when I was getting used to black power, um, 60s, this and that, well, at the 60s, but getting my head around that stuff, he suddenly announced himself being part of the angel race, which took me into another dimension and um, threw it at me so fast I sort of missed the point when he said, um, the angels are all around you, don't you notice them? I said, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. He said, if you don't see them, it's because they didn't come into the country by Ellis Island, they came into the Commerce Department. Now, I should have, <laughs> I should have been watched how he was moving those identities, but he was keeping part of one in place while he moved into another. At any rate, um, I'd like to say that I understood Sun Ra because I read all the books he was reading and he, he suggested, um, there were, you know, I don't know, 60, 70, whatever. I read everything he had to say and so forth. Now, when I come to Harry, forget about it. I'd never lived long enough to read the books he read uh, or the records he listened to or anything else he did. Yes, there were some similarities and had some interesting crossovers in taste, but Harry was something else again. I mean, he was, the ultimate challenge. I, I, at the time, when I started thinking about this, I was thinking about these books about how they never wrote the book, like um, The Quest for Corvo, um, a book about a man who the author never found, or even what else, maybe someone like um, Jeff Dyer's book on D.H. Lawrence, which is about how he never wrote the book on D.H. Lawrence. I thought maybe I could write a book about not writing the book. It's ridiculous. I can't do that. But I was beginning to feel like it was impossible. Well, Harry was somebody who both succeeded and failed at the same time. And I know when you were writing this book and we were in touch throughout the whole process, you were really struggling and constantly saying, I don't understand this guy. I don't know who he is. And I thought that's when you were on the right track. But one of the things you say in your son, Rob book that I always liked was that you say the strangeness of his music when you first had encountered it came from the lack of context. And that's very much true of Harry as well. I think that 
we don't yet understand Harry Smith because we don't yet have the context. We don't yet have the the tools, the parameters, the, you know, we, uh, we're not there yet. He's, he's ahead of us. The context of no context. Mm. Yeah. And, and, but the, the similarity between the two of them on that point there, because Sun Ra would change the context instantly. And since you knew Harry, I'm much at a disadvantage of that. By the way, I should say, the problem with ways, the ways that the biography developed, at least in the West, the concept of biography was that the author would know the subject as well as one knew oneself, um, maybe maybe more so. And that was absolutely ridiculous, which you find writers all the time doing that to the degree that they say she should have known or she might have done something of it or they might be aware of or these weird temporal forms of tense, of speculative tense that they use to cover that facts they don't know. So I was set out to, always set out to say, I'm not going to, I can possibly do it, I'm never going to guess at what somebody thought in their head. Um, that means that it plays hell with transitions, with uh, timelines and so on, particularly with, with both Harry and Sun Ra declaring, stipulating that they don't get along with time. Uh, they almost said the same thing, time and I don't get along, you know. If you bring those things up, you're walking into a trap. Can you read that passage from beginning in the book where you begin to talk about how you get a handle on Harry in relation to Sun Ra? Sure. Harry, like Sun Ra, frustrated those who wanted to know his life or sought to understand it. Though I thought I'd never again encounter anyone as, as mysterious and undecipherable as Sun Ra, along came Harry. He once warned an, interview, warned an interviewer, now if you'd like to ask any questions regarding specific points, regarding names, dates, places, events, lawsuits, attempted suicide, attempted suicides, attempted keeping other people from committing suicide, total lack of identification, the fact that I've not paid my taxes for 40 years, I've never voted, I've never had a driver's license, I only wear clothing that people throw away, I've never been in the army and I'm always behind on the rent. <laughs> it's kind of a definition of who he is by all the things he's not, right. isn't it? Well, things he's not, yes. Yeah. Um, let's go back to that first image of Harry um, at Naropa Institute, where he was uh, shaman in residence. There he is. Okay, so he's appearing in a student production, which uh, Marianne Faithful had organized, of Kurt Vile and Bertolt Brecht's Seven Deadly Sins. And they asked Harry to be the narrator. And he took it very seriously. He went out and bought a costume and he put glitter in his beard. And uh, and then the next shot will show you he's wearing a hat, which he made for himself. Um, it's actually made from rolled up pieces of uh, paper that were proofs to the cover of a book of Aleister Crowley that he uh, designed. <laughs> and uh, when Brett Lunsford's book on um, Harry's early years in uh, Washington State came out, I saw uh, one of the Lummi tribesmen standing behind him with a hat that looked exactly like that. But um, I just love this picture because it's kind of Harry outing himself as a magician, finally. Um, well, he, he has so many different identities, and he also uh, created um, really a huge number of masterpieces in different fields, wouldn't you say? Part of the problem... Um... 
I had, you know, I had some background in film, certainly more than the average background in anthropology and linguistics. Um, art, I don't know, you know, um, not really. Um, so I had an edge, and, and folklore, yes, I knew something about, but but the thing is, I had never been impressed. This is, I've never actually. I'm outing myself here. Um, I had never been that impressed with the anthology of American folk books because, um, having been raised in the South, those people were there in effect. I mean, um, radio was integrated, by the way, and the South always was. So you're tuning across the dial, and you're, you're getting black stuff, you're Indian stuff. Who knows what you're getting? Uh, gospel quartets. Um, I remember. Uh, Hank Williams was long dead, but he was still alive on the radio. So I wasn't as surprised by the voices that, that everyone else has written about. And it seemed to me uh, a very interesting collection, but not one that would um, shake people up, except for the fact that it, it was so strangely contextual. The context of it was, was weird, it was frankly weird. It was shifting around all over the place. And um, you might agree with me that... Um, some of it is on the edge of mysticism, and others it's very scholarly. In fact, excruciatingly scholarly. He was doing things no one else would do. Like, for example, um, I think I took folklore courses at several places, and folklorists and anthropologists who did folklore were not particularly interested in the words, believe it or not. They were interested in the, the fact that such things were going on, and uh, there were different kinds of voices, but they. I never once heard this talk, anyone talking about murder or stalking or whatever, lynching, uh, things that were in those songs. And, you know, this is not that really far back. Johnny Cash did a music video in which he was actually burying a woman whose name I did not know. I thought, how could they not be interested? Harry, on the other hand, is at some points completely interested in that. And he has these sort of um, telegrams or um, summaries, you know, which he, he gives you the whole plot. And, and it's nakedly there, you know, so-and-so cuts somebody's head off, somebody else is doing something or other. Now, that was shocking. Now, that was, you know, in some ways, that's a kind of modernist thing you could find going on in literature at the time, but not in folklore. They just didn't do that. Hmm. Well, you know, this... Uh, Harry... Um, he really kind of um, uh, comes into his own in Berkeley in, in the 40s. And San Francisco Renaissance often gets all the attention because of Powell and City Lights and a lot of things that happen there. But Berkeley is really the roots of that revolution, isn't it? Yeah. Um, until he moved to, to um, the Fillmore later on, that was his, most of his time was spent there. Uh, and he went there because he, he thought he was going to start anthropology again. I should say that, let's back up a bit. When he was 15, he started traveling on the bus, school bus with Native American classmates to see what was going on and, and, and hanging out. And that seemed, at the time when I first heard about that, I thought, this is, this is not likely. But then I realized that um, a colleague of mine at Yale, uh, Hal Conklin, had done just the same thing on Long Island. In fact, what happened with him was he was going to powwows at 12 years old and sort of standing around doing the dances. And sooner or later, someone came up to him and said, did he want to travel with him to some powwows because he was the only kid his age 
who was doing these dances. That is, the Native American kids were into something else. So Conklin traveled as a blonde-haired white kid with these um, Native Americans to their powerhouse, and there was no problem with that. So I gather that the point at this point in time, here I'll guess, which is what I don't want to do, um, a number of technological things were shaking reservations as well as the, the rest of the world. Um, I'd even include the bicycle on that, which suddenly introduced a kind of every person's um, liberation machine. But recordings, radios, movies, um, I spent some time in Newfoundland in, in the uh, mid-60s with a family who had never seen a movie, who had never um, had heard a record. Uh, it's a different world. And I think that was coming in and these people were changing. I could actually pinpoint this when Harry goes south to, to the uh, Everglades gets involved with the Seminoles. And when I asked the, uh, the young guy who went with him, I said, so how did that go? He said, well, the older people walked into it, the younger people didn't. I said, why? Said, well, they were growing their hair long and they were, they'd gotten beetle boots by mail and uh, they were listening to Blonde on Blonde, which Harry was related to in other ways, but they had no interest whatsoever in the traditions that were going on at that moment. They may well have done later, that I don't want to insist on that point, but at least that's what I think may have happened. But the idea that they let Harry use the very technology that might be threatening them, which is to say disc cutting recording machines, uh, cameras, uh, whatever he was using, photographs. Um, I think it's fair to say that today's um, Native Americans find that puzzling. Well, he had a way with people. He could somehow ingratiate himself with just about anybody when he wanted to. Uh, he simply identified with human nature more deeply than anybody you'd ever met. And he could wield that in, in really vicious ways, like a boxer. He could size somebody up and see their weakness right away. And he could he could go after them. But usually what he was going after was some kind of... Um, social armor or pomposity or, 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 you know, something that he felt needed to be torn down, but he could also, he could just ingratiate himself with anybody, anywhere. It's, I think it's why people so often called him a magician. And, and that's really a topic I don't think we can get into here because it was a very deep and real one for Harry. Um, but people called him a magician because he understood people better than anybody else. And it, it's, 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 um, seemed like magic. Um, he, he entered these, these human fields of endeavor, or, or, well, let's put it this way. He spent over a year with Orthodox Jews, recording and so forth. He spent, um, I can't put the years together, but at least, let's say, say, six or seven years with uh, uh, three Native American groups. Um, how many years in, in, when he moved from Berkeley to, to Fillmore, at least four, where yeah. he was, yeah. was involved in a totally different scene, which was to say uh, filmmakers and painters. Well, 100% uh, African-American jazz scene, too. Living in these jazz clubs, he had an apartment in Jack above Jackson's Nook, uh, living above Bob City. Yeah, and... Um, Fortunately, we, we know, people were still alive who knew him from that scene and said, oh, yeah, I knew Harry. Harry. 
Harry was a hipster. I mean, in the old sense of the word, he, he was looking like it. The famous picture of him with the dark glasses standing in front of his drawings. Um, again, the same thing is how does he make these, how does he get into these things? This is not something, you know, he can't come in and say with some kind of authority, well, I'm here because of this or that. And you've got to say, in all honesty, in 1951, maybe, uh, a white man who moves into a totally black neighborhood is trouble for everybody. Is he hiding from the law? Is he a criminal working some kind of a game? Um, is he the police? And yet, there he was being welcomed. Hmm. More than welcomed. He was a community character. Yeah. Well, at the very end of his life, when um, Allen Ginsberg, and I think Allen is really kind of the, the great hero of this book, uh, more than anyone, for his support of Harry and his belief and his faith. Um, but when ha uh, Allen brings Harry to Naropa Institute and he spends two years there as shaman in residence, um, he begins giving lectures. And up to that point, he'd always been very evasive. He didn't answer questions. He didn't like to be asked questions. He would seldom offer information. And suddenly here he was very open. And the subject he returned to was his time with the Native Americans and, and got into uh, American Indian cosmography. He liked to call the uh, Indians the owners because the, the terminology was shifting so often amongst, you know, uh, different, different terms. He called them the owners. But... Um, yeah, he went right back to the, his beginnings. And uh, I just finished editing the Naropa lectures, which is going to come out next month. And uh, you'll have all the lectures, which are online. But in, but what you get that's special are the handouts in class. And that's Harry's anthology of anthropological texts. And that's a whole new anthology. And Charles Stein, the poet, is now, he's discovered a whole set of uh, tape cassettes of world music that Harry sent to his friend Harvey Bialy. And so there's a Harry Smith anthology of world music, which is yet to be um, um, released. And there are just so many bodies of work that are still hidden out there to be found and discovered. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Right. And I think the reason this took me so long, I was, I guess it was five years, but I wasn't, of course, doing, it, doing other things at the same time. But um, there was always one more thing popping up, and you say, wait a second, no one told me about this, and I asked around, and no one knew about it. How, how did this happen? And I got, you know, in the last days, when I began to find things like the fact that when he first came to New York, he was moving an extremely high-level company, which I cannot understand as much as I know the details of it. How in the world did he ever get in with a group of millionaires who were operating... <laughs> what should I say, outside of the um, the ethos of the time, um, CIA people uh, who were doing, who feared the Russians had already levitated or something or other, found the ways to control minds. Um, rich people like uh, the, the only daughter of John Jacob Astor and Mrs. Borden of Borden uh, Products and um, on and on. Uh, people who were I'd like to think that, I'd like to not think that, um, as I think about it, um, that the very rich people can afford to be frivolous or can afford to, to do these things. But in fact, that is it. And these people were thinking in, in the 19, um, uh, mid 1950s, 1960s, they were thinking that um, 
science had failed in some ways, which sort of anticipates things yet to come, and that, that somehow that people who were pre-scientific already had some of the reality of what should be known. Maybe echoing sort of 16th century British mysticism and thinking, you know, where the, the Christians discovered Jewish writings and thought, well, they, they were in touch with God. Maybe we could get in touch with God if we did this or that. So these people were investing in this stuff. And to, what was interesting to me was they already knew that the work that they were investing in had been debunked and people's careers had been ruined for doing it. Think of things like the radiomics and uh, that's what they were doing at the time. And Harry stumbles into this. Um, and, you know, he was staying with people in, in, in their mansions and what have you. And at the same time, taking handouts, my favorite of which was when he first encountered um, Mrs. Esther, or Miss Esther at the time. Uh, he said, I'm an artist and I wonder if you'd give me some money. And she said, uh, well, I don't normally carry much money and would $200 be enough? Which I figured out is like $2,100 now. And she handed it over to him. This is just bizarre. Hmm. Well, how about uh, the story where he goes to uh, Izzy Young at the Folklore Center to borrow money? To yes, go. To, to borrow a dollar to go to, to get a cab to Allen Ginsberg, to borrow $5 to get to Peggy, Peggy Guggenheim, to ask thousands of dollars to go to Florida. <laughs> yeah, he really had his own economy. I used to say to him, Harry, it'd be so much easier if you just got a real job. You know, this is so much work. <laughs> bumming all this money and of course at his funeral everybody showed up who didn't know each other and he had all these different lives and i just thought it was because he didn't want people knowing that he was borrowing money from everybody uh you know if they got together they'd be comparing notes on him it's um, true when he went to he went to, he went to um, the seminoles at least six people gave him money each thinking they were going to get something different the same thing when he went to uh to oklahoma with it uh kiowa i mean uh, it was a strategy. Um, on the other hand, how could they have handled it if they knew these things were going on? How could they, you know, what did they say, what is this about? And that's what I was doing, saying, what is this? We get to the films, even. Now, um, Harry seemed to want to reinvent the film, as far as I can tell. And, you know, I know a little bit about film, but not enough to really know early stuff. But Harry, from, as a kid, was already doing kind of... Uh, pre-film film, that is boxes where you get a little cigar box and you make a slot or two and you have a rolling, you know, I guess you go to the Jesus box, the little stories of the Bible you could roll past. And uh, his friends from the time said he was doing some kind of animation, which they were not clear on because they weren't interested in that. So when Harry turned up in, uh, in Berkeley and saw that there was a, a real interest in San Francisco Museum of Art that um, in film, and I think, I think I'm correct to say that only Museum of Modern Art and the San Francisco Museum at that moment took film seriously. And I think you can see it because from my research, I found that um, a problem was that it was so successful. The film shows were so successful, they weren't going to the galleries. And Harry walks into the middle of this and decides he can make a film, but he doesn't have, have a camera and he doesn't know how to use a camera. He can't afford a camera and he can't afford the processing. So he's going to hand do everything. Now, this is getting close to <laughs> the history of, of, of painting or something rather. We have to paint both sides. You've got to paint numbers of the same things because what's the consistence of vision demands to be re repetition to see things. 
And then Harry takes another step where he says, well, maybe, maybe I'll project the film on the screen and I'll put some lights behind the screen, which are changing, and then I'll make a film of the film. And people would see the film and they wouldn't know that they were watching a movie of a movie, but they knew there was something different about it. When he took, um, well, let's see. When he, when he took, um, made his film where Mysterioso, the piece by Thelonious Monk was involved, it was about three and a half minutes and he made the film, animated it to go to fit that, but then decided, what if I were to run the film forward, then run it backwards, and I'd run the recording backwards, and then I would run it forward again, and we have these three parts. I mean, it's as if he's saying, I've got to do this all from scratch. And then when he gets to the multi-screens of, of Mahagoni with four, and actually thinking of six and eight, and who knows how many more if he could do it, he knew that there had been people who did this. There had been Abel Gantz, split screens, and, and then I guess Warhol was using multiple screens in the factory, but... Um, Harry said we can make these screens meaningful in the way they relate to each other. They're not just going to be all oh, that's interesting. It's a light show. Uh, these screens are going to tell a story in the way that they interact or not interact. Hmm. Well, we have um, an, an et- exhibition coming up at the Whitney Museum, a retrospect, Harry Smith retrospective. I never thought I'd see the day. Um, curated by Elizabeth Sussman, Carol Bove, and Ronnie Singh. And... Um, uh, that opens um, October 4th, and it will be up through uh, early January. And uh, then it travels in a reconstituted form, uh, I believe, to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, where a lot of Harry's books and records are now housed. And then it moves on to the Carpenter Center at Harvard. Um, but I think what we're trying to do with all these books and shows is is um, provide the context uh, to understand Harry's work and to kind of... Uh, come to grips with it, not in a simplistic way of just slapping labels like occult and psychedelia, but really trying to understand what his puzzles are, because they're also the puzzles of our time. And um, there's still still a lot to be figured out. Um, I wonder if we should do some um, questions. Stephen, do you want to do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. From the audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, start that up. So we have a question from CH. Uh, I've always heard that most of his paintings were lost or destroyed. Curious to know how and where the upcoming Whitney show found their material. And similarly, the Heavenly Tree show, which is, by the way, wonderful. Um, well, that's yours. Okay, well, um, the Whitney Museum... Um, there are some things out there with collectors, uh, and so um, they're borrowing. I mean, Jordan Belson, the filmmaker who was Harry's best friend, they worked together in San Francisco and Berkeley from 1948 to 1951, and then they continued working in New York at Inkweed Studios, which was run by Lionel Ziprin uh, through 54. Uh, Belson actually engraved uh, Harry Smith's Tree of Life, um, Belson saved a lot of work. Some of the best work that's in the show comes out of uh, the estate of Jordan Belson. And some of those paintings that we were looking at on screen um, are shown in the Whitney Museum show as projected uh, films that are scanned from the slides that uh, Belson preserved of those 
paintings, which were later destroyed. So it was probably High Hirsch, the filmmaker who uh, photographed them. He was the photographer for the Art Museum in San Francisco. Harry had the slides when he left New York, for New York in 51. He actually sold the slides to Jordan. I love that. That's typical of Harry rather than give them to him. And Jordan saved everything. So some people did save things. Um, so so the works are being uh, borrowed and um, re, I don't want to say reconstructed, but uh, represented from photographs and fortunately very good photographs. Um, so that's, uh, it, was there another question there? I think Yeah. Nancy asks, could you expand on Harry Smith's experience with the poetry community and Allen Ginsberg in particular? John, do you want to talk to that? Speak to that? Well, um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. Um, My understanding, Allen thought he should not be doing poetry, that he's not very good at it. Or at least he thought he was, he was, what would be a nice word here? Um, I can't think of a good one for it. Um, I I don't have a firm grip on that at all. I, I do know that they that uh, Ginsburg and sorry, that, it wasn't Ginsburg. It was yes, it was Harry and the Baron. Who, uh, Hilla Rebay. Oh, no, oh, no, uh, the Baron, uh, Jacques Stern Rothschild. Right. Or who sometimes, yeah. So he he assumed that at least uh, hmm. they did a they did a thing called uh, what was it called ecstasies? Uh, Even songs of ecstasy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of which I, I guess there's a finished copy somewhere. At least hmm. I was told it was. I have pieces of it, and a number of unknown poets and, and well-known poets were contributed to it as well as uh, some ethnographic and and. Uh, archaic looking materials um, but <laughs> those two people were, were ne- never never meant to do anything together I guess they wound up battling each other and for all sorts of things and, uh, that was the well, I only think was, I think he was best friends with poets like um, Allen Ginsberg and uh, Gregory Corso Philip Lamantia certainly but his own brand of poetry was uh, yeah, a very 19th century uh, sentimental. Harry once said what he liked, the poetry he liked best came in uh, yearbooks, uh, like high school yearbooks. Uh, I guess that was maybe a dig at some of his poet friends. Um, but that <laughs> photograph of Harry in the cape and the hat at Naropa, what he did in Seven Deadly Sins was he played the role of the narrator, the commentator, the Greek chorus, and he improvised the whole evening in rhymed couplets. And it just... It was un- it was extraordinary to see the way it all just came out of him, um, you know. In a way, he could do anything if he wanted to, you know. But, um, Until he figured out it was easy to do, and then he moved on. Yes, yes. Uh, Stephen, another question. So, uh, can you comment on the working relationship Harry Smith had with John Cohen, the photographer and member of the New Lost City Ramblers? Yes, um, they were you know, involved in a number of things together when Harry was doing John together by their interest in folk music. But I was shocked then when I asked John, when you created the Friends of All Time Music in New York, where they they found many of the people who were in Harry's original recordings, 
what did Harry have to say to these people? Now, I already knew what the problem was in New York because the um, <laughs> some of the people who were these, these legendary, almost ghostly figures, were showing up either in blackface or as, or as, as vaudevillians, or in one case as a rockabilly. So, as they put it shyly, um, how do we instruct them in the protocol of acting like they were once when they're not making a living doing that anymore? So I said, well, what did Harry do? He said, Harry never went to any of the concerts. He said, well, did he, did he met with him? No. I said, well, how could he do that? He said he was going to jazz clubs. He was hanging out with Monk and uh, Percy Heath and um, Dizzy and so forth. And he, he did come back to that at one point in a kind of double statement where he said, you know, it, the work I did then is really not relevant, etc. And then he turns around and said, but I wouldn't be prepared myself to say it really didn't matter. It really did matter. So he has it both ways. But he really did lose interest in folk music. Yes, that's true. Except for I want to add this, that he had a couple more projects that never got done. And one of them that would have been really significant was the shape note singing set, which would have been three LPs, um, much like the original one. And there were, some of those shape note things are on the original. He wanted to do a whole bunch of them. Now, he, he was driven by shape note singing. It was a sort of a New England thing for people who, who didn't read music. You read the shapes of the things, and they were put on staves, but you didn't pay attention to the lines. You just went with it. And the way you sang was they'd agree on certain people doing certain levels of stuff, and then they would slowly get together without words, put the pieces together, then and start adding words to it. So do-it-yourself kind of thing. It was done outdoors rather than in churches, although much of it was religious. Uh, although much of the religious, it was also often drawn from very secular sources. They just changed the words to it. So I was fascinated with that. And then he got the idea, because you only find a few samples of African-American shape notes, and he that there must have been more. And this, I found his notes to this, and he had the things picked out. He said, you know, we're talking about the Great Awakening year where there were black people going to white uh, gatherings and tent, tent uh, services and so forth. And there was active recruiting of blacks to Christianity. So Harry gets the idea that he hears in those songs really African and African-American influence. And that's what he was going to do with this set. And then I was shocked to look at his list of recordings. He was going to use five or six from South Africa and from Nigeria to show what happens when Christianity reaches a black church in Africa. Now, that itself would have been a real contribution. Nobody's done that since. I mean, the more Harry problems tied together with Folkways uh, records where they misplaced the originals on it. Um, Harry was going to go somewhere else with this. He said, I'm beginning to be interested in, in the words in this respect. When they say going home, do they mean up there? or somewhere else, is there another home? And when they talk about being high in the sky, are they high from CO2 um, deprivation or something? The, the singers in, in the process actually become high on the stuff. And then he's going through you know, little phrases he pulled out. What does work mean in this song? What does that, this is very sophisticated um, folkloristics for the time. Nobody was doing it, it was a kind of deep, Deep analysis of philology of these songs mixed with um, with the, um, the philosophical, but not so much religious as philosophical basis. I think this would be a great album. I'm sorry that 
that uh, the Smithsonian hasn't seen <laughs> worthy to uh, it'll bring probably, these things It'll out. probably turn up. I remember when Harry was working on that box set of shape notes singing, and, um, and you mentioned philology. Right next to the uh, tapes, he's got uh, the collected works of Roman Jakobson. I mean, he was deep into linguistic theory. Um, so, uh, John Cohen. Well, John Cohen went to Yale and studied painting with Joseph Albers. Um, and um, he wasn't just an expert on American traditional music. He was an expert on, um, on Peruvian music, um, expert on uh, Quipo, the, the language of knots that are used in, in Peru. Uh, John was a really extraordinary uh, character, did one of the very best interviews with Harry uh, for Sing Out magazine and was a lifelong friend. So John Cohen was a very great and special person. We miss him very much. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that in the famous um, interviews that John did with him, at the end, he was asking the questions that nobody else wanted to make public, particularly asking Harry, you've been sponging all of this for so long, you know, it's getting boring. How are you gonna do this? And Harry sort of spells out the ethos of what it is, which is basically um, this culture is not set up to interview the kind of scholarship he needs to do. And then he repeats this some 20 years later with vocalist and anthropologist Nick Spitzer. He gets more detailed to say that he thought somehow he could find a way through this. But he said, now I'm you know, broke, I'm living in a flop house and so forth. And he puts a spin on it by saying, that he trusts the people in, this, in this, the, the flop house more than he does the people who would fund him who didn't, chose not to fund him. But John managed to, to get him to talk about his existence and how he did it or, or didn't do it and how he was surviving. And I don't think anyone else did. Yeah, well, the collected interviews, think of the self-speaking as being re-released um, and um, there'll be some new interviews added to that. So that's another thing uh, to look forward to. We have uh, another question from David. Are there existing copies of the recordings Harry made of Lionel Zipperin's grandfather? Yes. Um, my understanding of that is that they're coming out from, check me on this, they're coming out from dust to digital in, in, um, in digital form, is that right? That's the plan, yes. Uh, Zia Zipperin has been working on this project, a book and a release, and um, Lance Ledbetter at uh, Dust to Digital is involved. So uh, th those recordings are not a rumor. <laughs> they do exist. There are a lot of them. They're extraordinary. And um, that's another thing to look forward to in the next year or two. Yes, they are coming on. Mm -hmm. This was a... Uh, rabbi on the Lower East Side who wore long flowing white robes, who um, spoke Hebrew, spoke Arabic, spoke Ladino, uh, Yiddish, who sang in all of these languages, who improvised songs, uh, had his own congregation. I mean, a truly extraordinary figure. And Harry spent two, three years with him um, and made these recordings. And I mean, we would know nothing about this particular part of um, the Levant, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean that was completely wiped out. So yes, those those are not a rumor, they do exist and they will be coming out soon. Mm -hmm. And there are also um, 
these recordings are also the last shreds of, of gatherings of people from Galilee and so forth. We had that, that culture of the Lower East Side was completely unknown to New Yorkers, and then they were Harry's indirectly has documented that. Yes. Another David asks, was the seven deadly sins at Naropa videotaped? Not that I know of. No, I, I don't think it was. But, you know, only about a third of the tapes made at Naropa in those years, video or audio, have been transferred because they don't have the money. And this is one of the problems with the whole weight of the archive uh, that's out there, the archives. Um, you know, we're losing material uh, day to day. Uh, in some cases, we know more about ancient Greece or ancient Egypt than we do about what happened 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So there may be tapes of it. I don't have a recording of it. Um, Marianne Faithful went on to bring that production to BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Hal Wilner produced it. And uh, it was it was quite a success. Unfortunately, Harry is not a lot around anymore to uh, to do his part. So uh, I don't know if there's a recording of it. Uh, there might be, but if there's anybody out there that wants to uh, support some uh, important work, uh, get in touch because uh, Naropa and a lot of other institutions need money to save and uh, preserve these tapes. Philip asks, did Harry have any involvement with the Folkways Shape Note Records they came out around 1953. No. Sure. And then, and then, um, Ben asks, did Harry have any contact with Jaime Diangulu during this time in Berkeley? That's particularly interesting to me because I had a student who wrote really fine. Uh, biography of him and um yes he did and it was never able to get all the way into it i do know that from you know from coming in from the side that he was introduced to Pioli by him along with several other people uh, that was uh, it could have been if it wasn't him it was someone else but at that point Pioli was being discovered by anthropologists or i should say by anthropologist students uh, the point that Harry was running a little behind in that, and uh, I, <laughs> I noticed that a reviewer of my book said, "I didn't say what happened when Harry showed up to uh, to talk to it turns out Sarah Carter of the Carter family, and he said it was the first time he'd ever used peyote, and he his head almost exploded." And the reviewer said, "I didn't tell them what happened." Well, <laughs> I, with Harry. What happened is never really there. Am I right? I mean, yes, the, if you're not there, the, the nice word is what? Fabulous? He's a fabulous? Yeah, yeah well, um, wait, I, I once said to Harry, the trouble with you is every time you're telling the truth, I think you're lying. And every time you're lying, I think you're telling the truth. And he really was like that. You know, it was, um, and even the whole thing of the shaman, um, you know, that um, the, that mystical power but there's also that goes with it is a kind of hooey, a kind of fakery, a kind of charlatanism. And they come right together. And this isn't just Harry. You, you get this all the time when you read uh, descriptions of shaman. Uh, so with Harry, uh, you know, the figure he reminds me most of uh, over time is probably Alfred Jerry. 
And I mean, he, Harry was a pathophysician. And Jerry once said about science, it runs in both directions. I forget the whole quote, but, you know, he's saying, yes, he's affirming science, but he's also denying it. And that was Harry. All the time he's affirming and he's denying. You get both sides. Uh, and yet he did know Jaime D'Angulo. He talks about him in the uh, uh, lectures at Naropa. Um, Jaime D'Angulo was a, was a wonderful um, anthropologist who uh, studied and spoke uh, numerous uh, languages of California Indians. And uh, it was also a head. And um, you can... A psychiatrist as well. Kurt Stern discusses uh, Jaime D'Angulo in the Berkeley scene in a, a Brooklyn Rail interview I did with him. And of course, uh, he was very important to Robert Duncan. So, yes, he was on the scene and, and his books are well worth reading. They're, they're fabulous books. You bring up pedophysics. I'm thinking um, the science of the imaginary. Um, believe in everything. Um, science can be fun. Mm. His imaginary science. Uh, yeah, Harry, Harry, apparently, my understanding of, of, look, I know very little about alchemy. I know very little about um, theosophy. But I know enough to know that Harry, but he was on both sides of the, the story. He was on one hand deadly serious and a scholar, on the other mocking it. I found lots of evidence of that. In fact, it was becoming boring to repeat it. I left it out. He would, you know show up at some medium, he would be talking very seriously about his profound matters, and then two days later, uh, say, why was I wasting my time with that, or why are you wasting your time asking me about that, um, and so forth. I mean, Harry, had a, I'm thinking, my favorite, this is not quite the same, but he was at one of the, the New York film festivals, and people were bemoaning the fact that some of his films were lost, and he said, it'd be a waste of money trying to restore them, and you could invest the money in sound, in, in, in um, uh, what the hell they call um, space travel things, so that you could reca reclaim them in space uh, much cheaper than trying to redo it on Earth. Hmm. Time machine, that's what I wanted. But you know, these photographs of Harry by Allen Ginsberg, and there are a lot of them, they're really extraordinary. I've been going through all the contact sheets recently and looking at them, and you really can see the magical intent that this guy has in those photographs, uh, in many of them. I mean, it's extraordinary, the presence that comes through uh, in those photos. But Harry didn't like anything when it became an orthodoxy. And um, one time um, he went to some kind of occult um, ceremony. I think it was an OTO ceremony. And he was with his friend Charles Compo. And Charles was bored. And so he was hanging out in the hallway. And he was with his girlfriend. And they were teenagers. And they were making out. And at one point, Harry came out from the ceremony to see what Charles was up to. And when he saw Charles and his girlfriend making out at the other end of the hallway, he turned to me and said, that's what they're supposed to be doing in there, meaning the occultists. I mean, he was a, a profoundly um, unorthodox uh, figure. And, and once when he found me uh, with a catalog of uh, occult titles from Johnson Reprint, he got very upset. He said, I don't wanna see you getting involved in that material. He said, I've seen too many people Go down the wrong road, get get um, uh, distracted. Uh, I mean, he really got angry with me and, and warned me against it. And later, when he calmed down, he said, "The thing you have to re realize about these things is they're not real laws; they're imaginary." 
That's beautiful. I, and, and I'm so glad that pataphysics came up in all of this. Um, I was actually ready to ask something, but this is fantastic. Uh, we're coming up on the hour. Raymond, is there anything you want to ask or maybe treat before we sign off? Um, just that people not try to understand Harry too easily or too quickly. Um, really take time with him and and you know think about the questions he's asking and um, not try to commodify him or to slap labels on him but really look at the work and and think about it on your own terms and you know theory's fine but have your own theories as well and um, just kind of um, uh, just keep looking and keep an open mind uh, that's what Harry was all about and read John's book because John's book I'm telling you not only is it incredibly well written it's one of the funniest books I've ever read in my life I mean it's a laugh a minute Harry was a truly funny person I mean uh, you John recounts this story that I was just re talking about today with uh, with Francesco Clemente where um I took Henry Geldzala to see a painting of Harry's because Harry wanted to uh, sell it. And he was asking $100,000. And, and Henry was very blunt with uh, people. And he said to Harry, you'd have to be dead to get $100,000 for that painting. And there was a pause. And Harry said, well, I'm half dead. Can I get 50000 <laughs> You know, he was like the funniest comedian you, you ever met. So uh, the book is truly entertaining and informative and uh, stimulating. So um, read the book. And I would like to say something that's coming home to me more since, since I'm now reading the book myself, is that the one thing about which he was not lighthearted and which he was not duplicitous or, or toying with people or making up things was Native Americans. He was deadly serious. And that was whether he's, this is a guy who never revealed what he was doing with it. This is this is the opposite of anthropology, which is you go until it used to be called um, uh, the cultural dope. You act like a child and say, "Gee, what is this? Tell me about this. What do these words mean?" Harry's doing all that stuff, and as a kid, he was doing it. He was making up, you know, lexicons of Indian words, this and that, paintings, dances. He was making it up his own system for recording dance on paper, which is a hopeless job. Only the ballet people ever seem to get away with it. Harry did all those things with great seriousness. There's no joking. He doesn't give you any secret insights. He was watching things that were not only secret, but they were illegal by, by American law. And every time he winds up among Native Americans, he treats them with enormous respect and shows, and they respond in kind. Uh, a lesson for people who think all you have to do is walk in and say, hey, I'm here to learn something. Uh -uh. Harry comes in with with a certain amount of knowledge already and knows how to treat people well. And if you ever read his notes, which no one does, to the Pioli stuff that he did with the Kiowa, um, he'll say things like, um, you must understand that um, I was drunk through much of this time, but nonetheless, I was able to do this or that. Or he would say something like, um, uh, I had to record in the, uh, in the pawn shop because I couldn't do this or that. And he's giving you absolute details of what he had to do to do this work 
at the same time as he's naming all the people who sang, he calls them connoisseurs, he calls them composers, the very thing that anthropologists would never do. They didn't even name anybody. They said, this is the Nigerians and this is the Africans. So Harry treats these people like they were, you know, he's, he's, a, he's his own curator. By the way, the word curation with Harry, <laughs> thing is, what shall I say about this as a closing remark? Um, Everyone's a curator now. Take, you know, everyone's a collector. You can collect anything. You can curate anything. But meanwhile, the, the connoisseur has disappeared and the uh, replaced by the freeloader and the downloader. You know, I mean, and I must say, Harry anticipated that. Well, Harry was also behaved this way toward women, children, animals. Um, yeah, and you know, there's still so much Harry Smith material out there in uh, the Getty Research Institute, thanks to Ronnie Singh and the Harry Smith Archives. Um, and John Claxman at Anthology Film Archives is doing an extraordinary job of uh, restoring films, including uh, he's working right now on uh, the uh, multiple superimpositions, which was never a favorite film of mine until I saw the restored version. And it's absolute eye opener. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. So there are still many collections that are out there and all those thousands of hours of tapes that he made in later years, which he referred to as movies for the blind. And uh, so that's material for people to get into and to collaborate with him, to do something with that. Um, he would love that. So um, we got to keep his work going. Well, there is so much more we could be talking about. This is a very deep rabbit hole, but I'd like to thank you both for this very, very rich very compelling portrait of, of Harry and John Zwed, uh, thank you for this great service you performed and congratulations for this remarkable book. Raymond Foy, thank you for doing the honors tonight. We hopefully will get you back in our orbit sometime sooner than later. Uh, very appreciative about this. And uh, also want to remind everyone, I've posted links with which you may purchase copies of Cosmic Scholar. Uh, better yet, if you're in the hood, come on down, browse our stacks. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach district. We're open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. now. We're slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So, so long, everyone. Thank you. Take care. We hope to see you all again soon. Thank you. Long live Harry Smith. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.